0: the Fit and Fabulous podcast with Dr. Jamie Seaman. Hello, it's Dr. Jamie and welcome back to the Fit and Fabulous podcast. It is so lovely to have you here today. I'm super excited for you to meet today's guest. We are going to have a very interesting conversation. I know you guys are going to get so much out of this. So please let me introduce you to Dr. Brett Schur. He is a board-certified cardiologist and lipidologist. He is in San Diego. Are you currently in San Diego, Brett? I am, yes. Like, okay. And uh, licensed to practice in seven different states. His main focus is on preventing and reversing heart disease naturally rather than putting patients on a bunch of medications and performing surgery. He started his own preventative wellness and was introduced to the whole low-carb world. Being a bit skeptical at first, as a cardiologist, he was soon convinced by the benefits of low-carb diets. In Dr. Schur's many patients he's seen who have suffered from heart disease, he found that there was a big overlap with cardiovascular disease, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, and insulin resistance. And of course, it's all very interrelated, and we are going to dive into that. When he first started treating his patients who suffered from heart disease with a low-carb diet, he could see how quickly the signs improved and even full reversal in some of these diseases. Dr. Brett Schur, welcome to the Fit and Fabulous podcast.
1: Thanks, Jamie. Thank you so much for having me. So
0: you are certainly a little bit of a unicorn in the cardiology world because not all your colleagues feel the same way about low-carb and ketogenic diets. I I find that in my own medical practice, I, I suppose. So give everybody, I guess, a little bit of a story in your background of how things evolved into falling upon kind of low and ketogenic therapies for your patients
1: yeah yeah you're right you can say unicorn or black sheep or uh (laughs) okay okay you're right black sheep's probably better (laughs) yeah right Uh, unicorn sounds too positive and it's definitely not positive within the field of cardiology but yeah so you know as a preventive cardiologist i um i did a combined preventive and general cardiology fellowship and it was actually in an ornish style program and you know it was a great program in terms of getting people to exercise and getting them to manage their stress and building community and really, you know, trying to help the majority of the risk factors. And then the diet was the very, very low fat, um, you know, almost pure plant-based diet. And um, when I got out into sort of the real world and I I assumed this was just going to help everybody. And I I realized, Hmm, this isn't having the impact on people that I I thought it would. Um, And I had to sort of, you know, question why, and it's hard to question things that you've been taught by your, you know, by people who've been doing this forever, right? For the experts, the quote unquote experts in the field. Um, so I sort of had to reevaluate things. And that's when I said, you know, maybe I just need to be spending more time with my patients, So I, I opened up this wellness center with a friend of mine who's a health coach. And fortunately for me, he knew a lot about nutritional ketosis. And this was, you know, over 10 years ago now, I guess at this point. And um, he just happened to be the right guy. And so on some of our more complicated patients who weren't really improving, he said, hey, how about we try a ketogenic diet? And my first reaction was, what are you, crazy? I'm a cardiologist. I can't do that. I'll kill the guy, right? But um, but luckily he sort of challenged me and he said, look, have you read studies on it? Have you looked into it? And I said, actually, no, I'm just sort of going off of what people have said before. And then once I sort of looked into it and saw that there were actual papers and studies written about a ketogenic diet helping with metabolic health and cardiometabolic risk factors, I was like blown away. I was like, how did I not know about this? So then I tried it on myself and then we tried it on couple of our patients. And it just took off from there because whether it's the weight loss, the the metabolic health, the, you know, the HDL triglycerides, blood sugar, all those things that were so stubborn, all of a sudden we're just correcting like that. And I'd never seen anything like it in my career. I was like, wait a second, how is this possible? And then that just opened up this whole world of, of realizing that nutritional ketosis is a medical intervention, right? It's not just a, a diet. And that's one of the big, parts of my message that we have to sort of reframe how we see it because more so than like a Mediterranean diet or just calorie counting or even a vegetarian diet, a, a keto diet, sort of a keto intervention encompasses all those diets, but it's this metabolic shift and it changes things in your body more than any other way of eating. And so that's what really got me just all in on cardiometabolic health and using low-carb and keto interventions for cardiometabolic health. And of course, now I'm still doing that, but now I've also added mental health. So with my role as medical director of metabolic mind, that's where this keto intervention, nutritional ketosis as a therapeutic intervention is even more striking really, because you're changing the, the energy source for your brain, which really impacts not only neurodegenerative diseases, but mental illness. So it it opens up this whole world of now we have this medical therapeutic intervention that you can achieve with food. It's probably more powerful than any pill you can take, but you don't have to take the pill. You achieve it with food and encompasses almost any dietary pattern you want to put on it. So yeah, that's sort of the the short version of my journey to where I am now.
0: Yeah, I think you bring up such a good point that As you know, you're a cardiologist, I'm a gynecologist. Sometimes in medicine, we live in our little specialty bubble. And I think sometimes we get so hyper-focused on our area of expertise that we even forget how interconnected and interrelated all these things are, right? You know, people with mental health issues have more diabetes, more insulin resistance, more cardiovascular disease. I mean, Dr. Chris Palmer has highlighted this, you know, with his new book, and it's so amazing. And I do think that's kind of where the shift in medicine really needs to go. But for a while, when I kind of got into this space, a lot of, you know, skeptics would say, yeah, that's great. It works for a while, you know, and then it doesn't because it's not sustainable. Patients can't can't sustain a low-carb ketogenic lifestyle, you know, long-term. When you apply this with patients... Is it a short-term intervention? Is it a lifestyle, long-term intervention? And what is your kind of clinical experience with patients being able to comply with that type of recommendation or intervention?
1: Yeah. So is it a short-term or a long-term intervention? I guess the answer there is it depends. Um, Because there are some people who may use ketogenic therapies, um, dramatically improve their metabolism. Um, and become more metabolically flexible, where they can transition to sort of a moderately low-carb intervention rather than ketosis. And that's, you know, if you're talking about metabolic health and weight loss, um, you may not need to be in ketosis all the time. But when you talk about a medical intervention to change sort of the fuel of your brain and, and to improve symptoms of mental illness or neurodegenerative disease, Then I think it is sort of an all the time, all in treatment, just like taking a medication, because you actually are changing the fuel and you have to keep those ketones up and make sure the metabolic health stays um, well taken care of. So I guess it depends on the perspective. Um, And then if you're treating like some autoimmune condition or, or, you know, there are lots of other reasons for a ketogenic intervention and it needs to be individualized to some degree about whether it's long term or not. But as to the question of whether it can be long term, absolutely i mean i have so many of my patients who've done it you see you know reports on the internet of people have been doing it for a decade or more um there are published studies of 5 years of you know with you know 75% adherence in a in a uh trial setting of people doing it so absolutely so the people say you know you can't do it long term are just people who who don't know enough about it i would say and it's absolutely true. Our food environment is not set up for low carb or ketogenic eating. No question about that. But that doesn't mean you can't control your, you know, your surroundings, can't control your environment. And if, if you're using it as a medical intervention and see dramatic medical benefits, I mean, that's enough motivation to skip the pizza and skip the ultra processed foods and, you know, and say, no, thank you for the birthday cake, because you know, you feel fantastic with this ketogenic intervention and it's done things that no pill or any other intervention have been able to do. So for those individuals, absolutely. It is sustainable long-term and, and should be. So yeah, people who say it's not sustainable just are, are unfortunately, I think showing their ignorance that, um, that they just don't know enough about it really, and haven't, haven't experienced it.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that there's definitely a, when it comes to lifestyle changes, a level of discipline required to adhere to something. Sure. But I think it, you know, I think people can, can white knuckle and and be disciplined for a short period of time, but human nature, I mean, even myself, you guys, I've been low carb since 2015, 2016, but I've had, you know, ups and ebbs and flows and, and everything, you know, we're all human. But I think for a lot of people, you're right, living with, you know, a a really long-term autoimmune condition for people that know there is significant cardiovascular risk in their family history, I think that these things really start to change, you know, our perspective on on why we do this. And I think that's what keeps people, you know, coming back, you know, again and again for for more, essentially. Because when I did it, I did it to reverse prediabetes and hypothyroidism. And although my biomarkers now look beautiful for me, it, it shifted the way my brain worked, my energy, Mm -hmm. my, my, my stamina, my resilience. Um, I don't get sick. I, I mean, it just, when I started to kind of, I always say like, when I'm in ketosis, I can smell colors. Like that's just Mm -hmm. when I realized what I felt like in, in that state and I'm not in it all the time. Um, can you kind of differentiate for somebody who, what is the difference between just a low carb diet and a ketogenic diet?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, a ketogenic diet is simple definition. It's just anything that allows your body to burn fat for fuel and produce ketones in the process. So if you're eating less than 30 grams of carbs per day, that's going to fit for just about everybody that you will be in nutritional ketosis. Now there are some outliers, but for just about everybody, you'll be in nutritional ketosis. So you, you flip the metabolic switch in your body. So you're no longer burning glucose as your primary fuel source. Instead, you're burning fat, fatty acids. And in that process, you create ketones as a byproduct, which now your brain and other cells, but particularly your brain can also use as fuel. And it's sort of like a, you can think of it as a cleaner fuel source because it doesn't require insulin and glucose transporters and those types of things. So that's a ketogenic diet. And that could be Vegan, vegetarian, Mediterranean, carnivore, omnivore. That could be any version of a diet. It just puts you into nutritional ketosis. Now, a low-carb diet, is it's interesting how people define it. But really, like anything less than 130 grams per day, it can be considered low-carb. But when you consider the standard American diet is like 300 grams of carbs per day, you know, anything below that is low carb. But I I think of low carb as in like, like less than hundred grams of carbs per day. Um, And for some people, interestingly, they can still go in and out of ketosis at 50 grams, 75 grams, or even hundred grams per day. And it depends on how metabolically healthy you are, how active you are, if you're doing time-restricted eating and whatnot. So you may not be in sustained ketosis, some people can go in and out of ketosis. Um, so that's low carb, low carb, um, does not by definition put you into ketosis, but a ketogenic diet by definition puts you into ketosis. So that's the difference that, that metabolic switch. And for some people who have prediabetes or even type two diabetes and metabolic dysfunction, when you can, you can actually heal that by going, um, by using nutritional ketosis as an intervention. And then, by healing it, you become more metabolically flexible. And if you're then sleeping better and being more physically active and doing, you know, time restricted eating and other things to improve your metabolism, then you can sort of switch back and forth between low carb and keto and low carb and keto. And you know, your body probably won't notice. But that's not for everybody. There's definitely that's one subset. And then there's a subset of people who are going to do much better by staying on a very low carb nutritional ketogenic intervention.
0: So there's people on the internet, we won't name names who say that the ketogenic diet is just another form of caloric restriction and a tool for weight loss and that all the benefits seen are simply just from the caloric restriction and the weight loss. Can you highlight, even if a patient doesn't lose weight, I guess, you know, um, let's say they just say the same weight, but they are doing a low-carbon ketogenic diet. What are the the physiologic benefits of of ketones in the bloodstream? Why Why is this Medical
1: intervention so helpful for a lot
0: of the things you've highlighted.
1: Yeah, and that's a great point. And and the question is like for what? So if you're talking about weight loss, then then yes, you know, if when you follow a ketogenic diet, the studies show you naturally reduce your calories, um, and that's going to help with weight loss. But it does it. But but then there's the metabolic health benefits, and there are published studies that show that above and beyond just the weight loss, and specifically the triglycerides and the HDL and the glucose and the insulin. Those all happen before significant weight loss and out of proportion to any degree of weight loss, a number of studies show. But what I'm focusing on now is what your brain does with ketones. Just caloric restriction does not produce ketones for your brain. And if you have neurodegenerative disorders like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, or if you have mental illness, whether it's bipolar disorder, um, major depression, schizophrenia, or even you know, maybe anxiety, then, then when you switch the fuel source of your brain, you, cha- you can change those symptoms and you can reverse those symptoms. So that's completely different from any just caloric restriction. That's where we're talking about this therapeutic intervention of giving your body and your brain ketones to run on. And then there's also the whole concept of you know what it does for autoimmune conditions, what it does for neuroinflammation or inflammation in general, and how it can change your neurotransmitters. I mean, there these are things that caloric restriction does not do at all. So this is where they're having the ketones and having a ketogenic intervention is just that. It is a medical intervention, not just a diet. Like I said. Okay. So I'm a gynecologist,
0: but one of the most common consults that I get. In my community, as patients come to me, they have implemented some sort of ketogenic low-carb carnivore diet. And they're feeling better, they've lost 20 pounds, they're they believe in in how they feel and, and the improvements. But they went to their primary care doctor and their cholesterol went up, and now mm-hmm. their doctor is concerned. Yeah. <laughs> Can you unpack for us the changes that happen when a patient starts to implement a low carbon ketogenic diet when it comes to lipids? I guess from a cardiologist's perspective.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's such a great question because. You know, I, I think if it weren't for this question of LDL, then the medical community as a whole would be much more open to ketogenic interventions. But because of this question of LDL, that there, there's still some concern. But the the first most important point is to realize that for the majority of people who start a ketogenic diet, and the studies back this up, there is no significant increase in LDL for the majority of people. Now there are the minority of people can see a rise. And of those, most will see a small rise in their LDL, maybe like, you know, 10 to 15%. And then there's this even smaller subset that has a dramatic rise. So we have to take each of those individually. So I would, it drives me crazy to hear a doctor say, oh, that diet's going to raise your LDL. You shouldn't try it. As opposed to like saying, well, wait a second, we know you can get these benefits from it. Why don't we try it? LDL is very easy to measure. And the majority of the studies show that LDL does not increase. But what does happen? HDL naturally goes up, triglycerides naturally go down, VLDL or remnant cholesterols go down, blood sugar goes down, blood pressure goes down. Actually, there was just a great study published by Dr. Laura Saslow and her colleagues on uh, Michigan showing that you know the DASH diet is the standard diet for, um, hypertension, but she compared a dash diet to a very low carbohydrate ketogenic diet for blood pressure control. And the ketogenic diet was significantly better twice as good as low at lowering blood pressure. So it, you know, it can reduce so many cardiovascular risk factors. So why wouldn't you try it? And just then just follow the LDL. Now here's another great point though. There was a, um, 2018 study by, uh, published by Verda health. Um, And what they showed was that on average, um, after one year of a ketogenic diet, the LDL went up by 10%. But they also did the calculated cardiovascular risk score, the 10-year cardiovascular risk score, and it went down by 12%. And that shows we have to look beyond LDL. Instead, we have to talk about cardiovascular risk. Because if you're improving your blood sugar, your insulin, your waist circumference, your blood pressure, you're reversing your metabolic syndrome, that goes a long way. And if your LDL goes up a little, but your APOB doesn't change, which is what happened in um, that Florida health study, you're having a a tremendous net benefit for your cardiovascular risk. So I think we have to change the discussion to um, cardiovascular risk rather than LDL. So for the majority, LDL doesn't even go up. For a small subset, it does go up, but for them, we have to we have to look at it within the context of cardiovascular risk. Then there's this small subset of lean mass hyper popularized by Dave Feldman. Um, that seems to get all the oxygen and all the attention and all the concern, but it is a very specific population, lean metabolically healthy individuals who, who start a ketogenic diet and they can see their LDL go up to numbers that in cardiology we only see with familial hypercholesterolemia. So it makes us very nervous because it's a, you know, a genetic disorder that leads to uh, premature cardiovascular disease. But the other thing to remember though, is this is a completely different subset. There's no um, genetic abnormality that we can identify, right? Not the traditional FH um, type genes. And they're very metabolically healthy. Um, And they're, they're doing this usually for some sort of medical intervention. So you can see, you have to follow what the benefits are and then weigh the benefits and risks. But that again, Is a very specific population that, fortunately, Dave Feldman and Dr. Matt Budoff are studying. Right? You don't you don't want to just assume something's healthy or dangerous. You want to study and explore it. Um, So they're studying that. So we're going to learn a lot more about that population. But the the thing, and, and I think that's important. We should look at that population. But what what really gets me is when people assume that that is what happens to everybody. And absolutely not. That is the absolute minority. So why not use a ketogenic intervention? with no concern in the rest of the population, knowing that you can follow all their risk factors and calculate their overall cardiovascular risk, which in general improves. So that's my sort of long winded answer to your question. Sorry about that.
0: (laughs) I love it. No, people need to, people need to hear this conversation because it is one of the most commonly questions that, that, that I get asked. So, um, There, of course, is these other markers looking at cardiovascular risk like LP little a, high sensitivity CRP. What would be, um, you know, for somebody maybe that has some baseline cardiovascular disease, I mean, how do we actually assess if there's somebody listening right now that says, how do I actually assess my risk, you know,
1: of a a cardiac event? Mm -hmm. What else
0: should they be looking at?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the best things to look at are coronary CT angiogram or coronary calcium score. Right? We don't need to use surrogate markers when we can just look at the arteries themselves. Now, mm-hmm. coronary CT angiogram, not every doctor is going to be comfortable ordering that. You know, you have to get an IV, you get IV dye. It's a, um, a, a specialized CT scan of your heart. Um, insurance usually isn't going to cover it. You know, there are lots of problems with it, but if you can get one done, um it's fantastic because it actually shows the inside of your arteries it shows uh, any plaque that's there a calcium score is sort of a surrogate for your ct angiogram it's much easier to get um, most doctors will order that uh, and is much less expensive and lower radiation dose um, and that can show you if you have calcium in the walls of your artery which is it basically just says there's been some vascular injury and a healing response there um And, but then short of that, yes, there are a number of different labs that that can look at potential cardiovascular risk and, you know, lipids being part of that, but blood sugar and insulin being another part of it. Um, Inflammatory markers like high sensitivity CRP being another part of that. LP little a is is a, basically a type of cholesterol that um, is most common in in genetic forms of heart disease Um, and can put someone at a higher risk. And then there's the triglyceride to HDL ratio, which is really important for metabolic health. Um, There is not just LDL, but ApoB, which is sort of a better marker of cardiovascular risk because it also includes what we call the remnant cholesterol like VLDL and some of these other particles. There's the LDL particle number and the size and the small particles, which also tells you a lot about your LDL um, and small particles being a little higher risk than larger particles. Um, so there's a number of different tests you can get, but uh, if you can, getting the calcium score of the CT angiogram is is sort of the best because that just tells you what, what's going on with your arteries and then you can decide from there. Um, you know, for a lot of these labs, they're hard to get your doctor to order. And that's where something like ownyourlabs.com, another venture by Dave Feldman and Citizen Science Foundation, um, they have negotiated, you know, really good discounts with LabCorp, I think it is, where you can on the website and order your own labs and, and, you know, pay out of pocket, but, but less expensive than if you went on your own. So, um, yeah, there are lots of good options for assessing your cardiovascular risk.
0: Yeah. I, um, I order a lot of coronary artery calcium scans because I get these patients who have lipid derangements. And so I say, well, let's, you know, let's look at your history. Let's get a CAC in my town. It's about a $119 test. Insurance never covers it. And I tell patients mm-hmm. they're probably gonna have to pay cash, but that's not super expensive in the grand scheme of all the tests we can order in medicine. Um, but the CCTA that, that, uh, Dr. Scher is talking about is an expensive test. My husband just had one done. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I've shared bits and pieces with the world, uh, about that story, but it's like a $4,000 test. So that's a, a, a bit of a difference, but I even found one time that, uh, there was a place in Texas, uh, you can get a CAC on Groupon. It was like $49 and you didn't even need a doctor's <laughs> order. Like this imaging place, you could just buy the Groupon and go get your CAC. So you guys check, check, the check the internet, check for wow. some sales. And, um, and if you are worried, uh, get that test. So when it comes to coronary calcium, let's say somebody goes and gets the CAC and they're, they're, Scores 500, which for everybody listening, a score of zero is obviously what you want. There's a lot of reassurance with a score of zero. Um, but if you have a high score, you're certainly at much bigger risk. So if there's somebody listening that has existing cardiovascular disease and they're very interested in this implementation of low carbon ketogenic diets, is the diet intervention good,
1: better at prevention or reversal? <laughs> or both? Oof, big topic, <laughs> big topic, All right? So first reversal. What does reversal even mean? So there there are some um cases out there where people are promoting reversing coronary calcium. And and I like to sort of steer away from that because remember, coronary calcium is sort of a healing response to a vascular injury. So I'm not sure we even really want to reverse it, but what we want to do is is slow or prevent progression and make sure we don't develop plaque inside the wall of the artery and make sure the plaque is Stable rather than inflamed, uh, oxidized, and more unstable plaque. So, so reverse is a is a tough um, word to use there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I think a ketogenic intervention is perfectly good for um, prevention and preventing progression, especially if someone's metabolic health is um or metabolic dysfunction is driving the vascular disease which frequently it does then a ketogenic intervention is probably the best nutritional intervention uh for that but it also comes for you know like a multi-pronged approach right if you have a calcium score of zero that's for me as a as a clinician that's a very different approach than someone with a calcium score of you know 200 300 400 of course depending on your age as well but those are very high scores Um, And it's a, it's an all hands on deck kind of multi-pronged approach. And this is where I get into a little bit of trouble. You know, there's this thought that it's either nutrition and lifestyle or medications, but no, it can be both too. So if someone's got a high calcium score in, you know, four or five hundreds, that's when I am a proponent of medications. And because I think they can play a small part in a broad treatment program. And at that point, your body has sort of said heart disease is going to be my issue, right? To have a calcium score of 500, your body is saying heart disease is going to be my issue. This is much higher than it should be. There's been a lot of vascular damage. So that's where I want to take every approach and make sure your metabolic health is perfect, your inflammation is perfect, your blood pressure is perfect, and your lipids are perfect, meaning your triglycerides, HDL, um, size and density of your LDL and total number of LDL and ApoBs, all those play into it when someone has identified heart disease, which is a very different discussion than if your calcium score is zero or if you're you know, 60 years old and your calcium score is 10 or something like that. Those are very different discussions.
0: So, when you say medical um, treatments, you're talking about drugs like statins and things like that. Is that what you mean when you say yeah. adjective medical treatment? So Correct. for somebody statins? who
1: statins or Zedia or, uh, the PCSK9 inhibitors, um, they, they all can potentially play a role.
0: Do those play a role for people that have no evidence of existing cardiovascular disease? So, you know, patient Joe, whoever, who, um, has, let's say he even has a, a really poor triglyceride to HDL ratio. He's got some mild hypertension, Um, his A1C is 5.9. Um, he's a little overweight. Um, do medical interventions help in that situation?
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, all those things you just mentioned, the statin is not going to help those one iota and may actually make them a little worse. So that's Mm -hmm. exactly the person I would not treat with a statin. Instead, that person needs a lifestyle intervention. They need to work on their metabolic health. They need to, um, improve their metabolism. So, Uh, I I would not um, intervene with a statin in that standpoint. And could I ever use a statin in someone with a calcium score of zero? I guess I'm not an absolutist. I wouldn't say never, but boy, it would have to be a very extreme case. Because there actually was a great study out of um, Walter Reed Medical Center following people over 10 years um, with their calcium scores. And some of them were treated with, with statins and some of them weren't. And what they showed was if you had a calcium score of zero over ten years, whether you got a statin or not made absolutely no difference. No difference in in in, in heart disease. Whereas if your calcium score was over a hundred, then there was there was a difference. Um now they're not, you know, dramatic, reduce it down to zero, but it, it was it was a um a benefit. So um you know it's evidence like that that shows me the calcium score of zero, you need a very dramatic reason to put somebody on a medication. And um it's pretty rare to happen in, in my practice. Yeah, I get um
0: I get nasty grams from the insurance companies because I am a very lifestyle forward clinician and I will diagnose patients with prediabetes or diabetes who were working on lifestyle interventions. And I will get letters from their insurance company saying, you have this patient that has type two diabetes and you don't have them on a statin. Mm -hmm. You are not meeting, you know, clinical recommendations. Right. Uh, And they just go in my recycle bin. But um...
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's a great example, though. That is a great example because I've seen a number of patients. Who they go to see their doctor, their doctor plugs them into that, you know, 10-year cardiovascular risk calculator, and they get like a 7.5% risk or an 8% risk, which is an indication for a statin. So all they see are the numbers. They say, you take your numbers, put it in here, the result says yes for a statin, here's your prescription. And they come to me and they're like, I don't want to take a statin. What can we do? I'm like, all right, let's do these lifestyle interventions. And after like three or four months, you put them back in the calculator, all of a sudden they're not a candidate for a statin anymore based on those on those calculations. So why don't you just address the the risk factors that are quote unquote putting you you know as the candidate for a statin why don't you just try and reverse those first rather than using the statin it's totally doable but that's not that's not the way so many of us think in medicine unfortunately and part of it is the structure right you get you get paid more if you have enough people on statins and you get paid more the higher risk the the patient is and Um, And you have, you know, five or 10 minutes with the patients, right? So all those things set up for that type of environment. But really, the best thing for the patient in my mind is you address the underlying causes. And all of a sudden, that same faulty calculation doesn't say they need a statin anymore.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's such a good thing to to point out. So, I um did an integrative medicine fellowship. I know you've done functional medicine training. You and I obviously we've discussed whether we're the black sheep or the unicorns or whatever it is, but I will have some patients that um that understand they have some risk going on um but they don't want a prescription medication, but they want something quote-unquote more natural. So they'll ask about things like garlic or berberine. What what role do those more integrative, functional, maybe supplements play is there a role? What does kind of the literature say?
1: Yeah, I, you know I think there is a role um, now we've got to be careful how we view it though because for someone with established coronary disease who I want to be very aggressive with, they have a little bit less of a role to be honest in my book because if I'm going to go with a prescription medication in that in that sense, the prescription medications are just much more powerful than than the supplements, but um, certainly for primary prevention, for someone who really does not want to take a medication, they do have a role. Now, where, where I worry is when people take a whole fistful of supplements and they're not really monitoring if they're having an effect, right? Like berberine should be improving your blood sugar, your insulin, and lower your LDL a little bit. You can measure that, right? Red yeast rice should be lowering your LDL. You should measure that. Um, garlic can have an effect on your blood pressure and to a degree on your lipid, lipids. You should be measuring that and testing it rather than taking, you know, spending lots of money on a fistful of supplements that aren't doing any benefit. So that's where I worry a little bit about that. Supplements have gotten a little out of control. It's like, oh, trust me, it's good. It'll help you, but I want to measure it. Now there are some that you can't measure, you know, whether it's like resveratrol, right? The longevity type, um, interventions or quercetin like you can't really measure an outcome on those so you just if you're going to take those you have to believe um that it's going to be beneficial and and kind of go for it um so yeah i think supplements definitely do have a role but again for that person with a calcium score of 500 if they're going to take a statin and zedia um and then then maybe supplements have a little bit less of a role, but like berberine is a perfect example of one that can improve your metabolic health and can lower your LDL a little bit. And and is great. Um, If someone can do that with lifestyle interventions and not need the berberine, okay, even better. But if they want a little assist from berberine, sure. You know, why not? It's been used in, you know, ancient Eastern Eastern medicine for hundreds and hundreds of years. So um, why not give it a try?
0: Yeah. Um, so I, I don't like supplements just in general. This is just like a personal, uh, I I can't remember to take them regularly. I mean, that's just, I always, I always joke if I needed a life saving medication, I'd probably be dead, but, um, (laughs) I, I supplement electrolytes. That's probably one thing I absolutely routinely do on a, on a daily basis on a low carb diet. Is there anything that you take personally that you kind of think is like a, a good thing in your, uh, repertoire on a daily basis?
1: Yeah. So I take magnesium, um, I think that's important, um, especially on a low carb diet. Um, uh, definitely salt. I mean, that's, I don't think that's a supplement. That's just like normal. <laughs> <I think>. um, <laughs> in the winter, I'll take vitamin D um, just because I don't get as much sunlight. Um, yeah, but that for me personally, that's it. But yeah,
0: know. I think those are, I think those are the big hitters. What are your thoughts about fish oil and omega 3s, uh, especially mm-hmm. with cardiovascular risk?
1: and prevention of course that's in a lot of data and studies and yeah so first and foremost i you know again i say eat fish um i am a big fan of sardines um i'm a big fan of of just seafood in general and of course salmon um and any kind of fatty fish now some people hate fish some people really don't like it some people have a hard time getting it um, especially quality fish that's that's another problem Um, I'm in Nebraska. You're in San Diego. Okay. (laughs) Right. I got fish coming. I got boats coming into the dock on a regular basis with fresh fish. So yeah, a little bit different. Um, But yes, there, I think there is pretty good evidence that um, omega threes are beneficial. Um, It needs to be balanced to some degree because there's also some evidence that says it can increase the risk of atrial fibrillation. Okay. That's, you know, one observational study I think the jury is still a little bit out on that. Um, and But definitely if someone has high triglycerides, um, low HDL, and high blood sugar, that is definitely um, an indication for uh, fish oil. Again, if you can get there with diet, even better. If you can't, then sure, supplementing is fine. Now, when it comes to supplements, if you're going to take magnesium or vitamin C or vitamin D, I I don't know that the brand matters all that much. You want a somewhat reputable brand, but when it comes to fish oil, I think the brand really matters because there can be a lot of toxins, whether it's mercury or dioxins, or there can be um, impurities with fish oil. So that's where you really want to go with, you know, reputable reputable brands if you can. Um, Yeah. So that's my one plug for that.
0: Yeah. I I completely agree with that. Um, Talk to us about fiber, is mm-hmm. does fiber play a role because that is something, you know, people say, uh, on a ketogenic diet. Oh, cause I mean, I eat a lot of meat and eggs. I, I
1: don't eat a ton of plants and fiber. What role does fiber play? Yeah. So first and foremost, you know, a, a keto diet is not by definition, a low, far, low fiber diet. Now there definitely can be, but there also could be high fiber versions of a right. keto diet. So when it comes to, you know, the carbs that, that contribute to whether you're in ketosis or not. It's the non-fiber carbs, the the net carbs that that really um, determine whether you're in ketosis or not. So you can have a high fiber diet and, and be in nutritional ketosis. So they're not exclusive, usually exclusive, which is what a lot of people assume. But the question is, do you need fiber? And that's where I think nutrition science has really gone haywire to say that we need fiber because there are studies showing Within a high carb context, higher fiber diets are healthier than lower fiber diets. Well, of course, because if you're eating a lot of carbs without a lot of fiber, it means you're eating a lot of highly processed and refined carbs, which of course are bad for you. So it should be no surprise that a high carb diet, you want more fiber. How does that apply to low carb? Never really been looked at. Um, So what is... Fiber do well. It can help with your your GI tract. It can help with stool formation. Although there are some studies showing that if you supplement or eat too much fiber, it actually makes it worse, right? So, mm-hmm. so how do we know? So, um, it can potentially lower your LDL a tiny bit, right? Like maybe by like three or four percent. Fiber can. So, is that important? No, not not really. I don't think so. Um, so. I, there's no nutritional requirement for fiber. There's like a recommended daily amount. But again, that all comes from the context of high carb diets. And that's, that's where we really have to realize when we look at nutrition science and nutrition recommendations, the overwhelming majority of the studies and recommendations are for a high carb diet. And when you translate that to low carb diet, all of a sudden, it doesn't make sense anymore. And so that's how I feel about fiber. Um yeah. So- whether, you know, somebody's eating fiber or not. I don't care. I care if you're having, you know, what are your bowel movements like? Are you bloated? Are you constipated? Are you having normal bowel movements? Okay, fine. Move on. Right? Like that's, that's probably the only thing that I would ever recommend someone change their fiber higher or lower, depending on any symptoms they're having. Um, yeah, so that, that's my take on yeah. fiber.
0: Yeah. I'm on, I'm on your same boat with fiber, mm-hmm. but, um, I, uh, I, uh, I get the question a lot about fiber. Yeah. so I'll just throw that. Now, one thing I do, I guess, want to bring up about fiber is that in the literature, they would suggest that the cardiovascular benefit of eating fiber is that it increases short-chain fatty acids, butyrate production that are absorbed by the clonocytes, absorbed into peripheral circulation, and that the heart gets some sort of benefit from that. If you're on a ketogenic diet and you're making beta-hydroxybutyrate, um, you're making I don't know five fold times more mm-hmm. than you would if you were eating twenty five grams of fiber um is there a role with with beta hydroxybutyrate in protection of of
1: the the heart i mean is that is that there is that it's a great question at this point it's mostly speculative i think um and it's a lot of mechanistic theories so you know i I guess the jury is still out now there was one pretty cool study um a little bit specific though. It was patients in the the ICU, the coronary care unit, with heart failure. Their hearts weren't pumping well. their Their hearts weren't working well, and they were in heart failure. And they gave them um, exogenous ketones, um, and they found and they had what's called a Swan GANS catheter in. So it's a catheter that that sits in your neck and in the main vein that measures your cardiac output, how much blood your heart is pumping, and measures the pressures in in your veins. And what they found when they gave the patients ketones, their cardiac output went up and their pulmonary pressures and their venous pressures went down, which is exactly what you want to see. So they had improved cardiovascular function with the ketones. And so there is a suggestion that that a a failing heart works better on ketones. Again, sort of the similar analogy, I guess you could say to to the brain. If there's insulin resistance, if there's uh, mitochondrial dysfunction where you can't Convert glucose to enough energy, you bypass that with ketones, and now all of a sudden it's sort of a cleaner, more efficient fuel where you can perform better. So there was that study showing that that hearts can hearts can like ketones and can work well um with ketones. So what does that mean for the normal functioning heart, right? Not the failing heart? Does that make a difference? Still could. Yeah, it still could. We just need maybe need a little more evidence from that standpoint.
0: Love it. Okay. Uh, let's shift to the, the next thing. I had a patient come in recently that said, uh, Dr. Seaman, I eat a very healthy diet. I, I avoid red meat. I don't eat a lot of red meat. So, uh, as, as we have evolved in our house, I guess, to low carbon ketogenic diets, we eat significantly more red meat. We eat a lot of eggs. We eat a lot of butter. Uh, we have bacon on occasion. What is the the story with saturated fat and heart disease. Should that be a concern for people transitioning to low-carbon ketogenic diets?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Another great question. So again, the first disclaimer is, you know, a ketogenic intervention does not have to be high saturated fat at all. Again, that's the assumption that it has to be bacon wrapped, steaks, cooked in butter. And well, it can be, it certainly doesn't have to be, right? You can eat a very low saturated fat ketogenic diet and use that as a ketogenic intervention. Now, that being said, should you? Well, do you have to be afraid of saturated fat? And, and I, again, I say absolutely not. Um, the, the science, the nutrition science that, that supports that, again, is these you know, large observational um, studies where they're completely uncontrolled. They have huge healthy user bias. There's tons of confounding variables and the magnitude of difference is tiny. So for a lot of these, you know, you can increase your risk of heart disease. Those who eat more saturated fat compared to lower saturated fat, what they find is an increased risk of like 1.2. And for comparison, smoking and cancer is between like 15 and 30, not 1.30, but 30, you know, 15 and 30. And here we're talking about 1.2, which is minuscule. So what does that mean for one individual? Practically nothing. And that's with all the um caveats of how poor and how low quality these studies are so there was a Cochrane review that looked at randomized controlled trials so a higher level of evidence of people eating more or less saturated fat and they found in general there was no difference in who lived or died and there again was a very small difference um, in increased risk of heart disease for those who ate more saturated fat very small and in that set it was only in those who had a significant increase in their ldl and then to complicate it even further, it, of course, was in a mixed high-carb, high-fat diet, right? So now we're we're unpeeling the onion to show, like, does this even apply to someone eating a low-carb diet? And the answer is absolutely not. It does not apply. And, and why would that be? Well, because in a low-carb diet, you're burning your fat for fuel. You're not storing it as much. You are burning it. You're using it. Um, so it's a completely different metabolic scenario. So I don't believe saturated fat is a is a concern. I don't believe dietary cholesterol is a concern within that context of a healthy, low-carb diet. Um, if someone is eating high-carb, high-fat, yeah, then you want to be careful, perhaps. But really, what you want to do is lower the carbs because that's what's setting up the whole metabolic environment to potentially make the saturated fat, the way your your body incorporates it, different. Now that's you know theory because it really hasn't been looked at. But that's the only place that saturated fat really has been implicated as a problem is within this context of a high carb, high caloric um, type of diet. So, yeah, if you're going to follow a low carb diet and eat your saturated fat, by all means, I, I, I'm okay with that. But again, you can follow what is your blood sugar doing? What is your blood pressure doing? What is your ApoB doing? What is the size of your LDL particles doing? What's your HDL and triglycerides doing? We don't have to guess whether a dietary pattern is, quote unquote, you know healthy for you. We can, we can test it and follow it. So um, again, that's what I, I really get discouraged when someone says, like, oh, no, you can't eat that way. You're unhealthy. It's going to be unhealthy. Well, how about we try it and see what happens? Yeah. Because
0: yeah, you know, a lot can happen. So you go to any keto page on Facebook, and uh, you know you see all these recipes, fat bombs, all this you know good keto stuff. Like we said, you can have butter and bacon. Can you overeat
1: fat on a ketogenic diet? Yes, yes, you can. I mean, and that's something that I think um, is maybe a little misunderstood. That like fats free, you can use as much fat as you want, and your body's just going to burn it. Well, I mean, calories are still calories. You can still overeat calories. Now, I. The thing about a keto diet is it's actually kind of hard to overeat on a keto diet unless you're using the products because the the products can still um, are processed and they can sort of bypass a lot of the satiety mechanisms that keto diets are so good at hitting. So yeah, you can. And we frequently see that someone starts a keto diet for a weight loss site um, and they're really improving. They're seeing so many benefits. And then they start adding in the nuts and the fat bombs and eating more cheese and in addition to the meals, because it's like, this is great, I can eat all this that I want. And then all of a sudden their weight loss plateaus, and then maybe their metabolic health progress plateaus, and then maybe they start to go the wrong way. And those are usually the, the culprits. Um, and if you can stick to a whole foods keto diet, then it's really hard to overeat calories um, because of the natural satiety mechanisms that keto diets tend to uh, provide.
0: Yeah, I've seen a lot of food manufacturers starting to make keto products and cereals mm-hmm. and all sorts of things. And I'm like, oh, like cringing because it's just ultra processed yeah. food is ultra processed food, whether it's plant burgers, whether it's keto products. I mean, it's like the, the marketing people are really smart and yeah. we, we like to fall to those conveniences. Okay, and I, think um, that's,
1: I think that's a bit of the problem with what happened with Atkins, you know, Atkins diet. Uh, and then you had the Atkins bars, you had the Atkins shakes, you had all this like Atkins products rather than just the concept of, you know, following that type of diet. And, and there are many people who have said, and I I kind of believe it, that that could be the downfall to the keto diet, that it becomes this, this ultra processed type diet. And and people are going to be like, see, keto diet doesn't work. Well, hang on a second.
0: That's where I like to
1: say, you know, ketosis as an intervention, but as a whole foods based type approach. And all of a sudden, it's a completely different, you know, intervention.
0: Absolutely. Um, we've mentioned a couple of times talking about hypertension and, uh, and sodium and salt. So can you kind of explain for people, you know, who are instituting a low carbon ketogenic diet, the importance of, of sodium electrolyte kind of, you know, supplementation, because they have certainly heard that you shouldn't have a lot of salt in your diet, that salt's bad for your blood pressure. Maybe there's somebody listening that has existing high blood pressure, you know, or something like that. What what uh, what should people know about that?
1: Yeah, it's it's so interesting again how this happens in medicine. But the this recommendation that everybody should follow a low salt diet and where's the evidence for that? It just simply doesn't exist. That that low salt diet is important for everybody um, with high blood pressure. There's actually one good study that showed about twenty five percent of the people with high blood pressure have salt sensitive blood pressure, meaning the more salt you eat, the higher blood pressure goes. And if you reduce salt, then your blood pressure can reduce. But that means 75% don't, right? 75% of people in that study, salt didn't make a lick of difference. And when you go back to sort of the original DASH trials that looked at, you know, higher salt, lower sodium, higher sodium, lower sodium diets, and they looked at it in relationship to potassium, potassium had more of an impact than sodium. Um, so sodium is is not as big of a player as as General medicine likes to think now. When it comes to a keto diet, because of the metabolic changes that happen, you actually lose more sodium. Your body wastes and sort of pees out more sodium, so you actually need to replace that sodium. So that's one point that your your body physiologically is going to need more sodium. But the second thing is, where do most people get their sodium? They get it from you know, pretzels and, and uh, potato chips and, you know, processed foods and frozen foods or, what you know, the, the highly processed foods. So again, if you're eating a whole foods based keto diet, you're not getting hardly any sodium. So yes, add sodium to your diet. Um, and again, you can measure your blood pressure so easy. You can look to see if you have swelling in your legs so easy. You don't have to guess and say, oh, they say salt's bad for me. I shouldn't eat any. No, do it. And, you know, as a small aside, you know, I, I always like to say people who say they don't like broccoli just haven't had it cooked in butter and salted because they get like plain steamed broccoli. Of course, that's terrible, but put yes. salt on it, cook it in yes. butter, and all of a sudden broccoli can be delicious, right? So, um, it, this 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 propensity to say low salt is healthy has really hurt us more than it's helped us um, for most people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You need sodium and, uh, you need it for a lot of different things. Um, I am one of the crazy people who carry my little salt shaker around with me. I I love those little travel shakers from Redmond real salt and I'll get them out at the restaurant and sort Yeah. people are like, Oh my God, she's still, she's still shaking. <laughs> like, <laughs> I love a ton of salt. I just, like, I just listen to my body and I, I love things really salty. And yeah, if you haven't put butter and salt on things, then you're, you're not living. It's, uh, it's, it's a whole nother level. Yeah. So I end all my podcasts with something called the semen analysis and I usually pull a great study that that goes along with what we've talked about but for today I'm I'm changing the script just a little bit. I would love to um there there's somebody listening right now. They have they're they're bought in Brett. They under they love what you're saying, they love what I'm saying. They want to go low carb ketogenic. How does one find a cardiologist in their community or even a primary care for that matter, but specifically a cardiologist? And this is kind of a a personal question. Almost my own mother has very significant cardiovascular disease. Mm. She um, has done some telemedicine with people, but she locally, her cardiologist believes in Mediterranean diet told her she's crazy for seeing an integrative cardiologist. She's wasting her money spending on all these labs and tests and things like that. He, and it's really hard for her. It's hard for her to go to her visits and get her prescriptions and things refilled and, um, and just doesn't feel supported. Um, how does somebody find somebody near them that, I mean, there's not many unicorns. I'm still going to call you a unicorn,
1: Brett. (laughs) I mean, that's, it's a hard question. I wish I had a better answer, but there, you know, I guess one point though, is you don't need your cardiologist to be full on board. You know, if you can have a dietician helping you or a health coach helping you and then helping that communication with the cardiologist. And then, and that's actually how we can recruit more cardiologists and more doctors. Cause you do it with somebody else and you say, look what happened to my calculated cardiovascular risk. Look what happened to my triglycerides and HDL and my blood sugar and my blood pressure. Look at how all these things improved with this nutritional intervention. You sure you think it's killing me and you don't, and you don't want to try mm-hmm. it and learn more about it. I mean, that's, that's such a powerful thing. So, you know, there are directories out there. Dietdoctor.com has a great, great directory. Um, you know, now with metabolic mind and using ketogenic interventions for mental health, um, Georgia E. at Diagnosis Diet has a directory for that, but for, you know, primary care physicians, um, dietitians, uh, some cardiologists, diet doctors probably got the best site for that, but yeah, we are kind of few and far between. So that's where I really focus on this multimodality approach and, and having a team, get a health coach, get a dietitian and show your doctor the results and open their eyes. Um, Yeah. I love that
0: answer. Yeah. I've had people say, well, I went to my doctor and my labs and everything looked good. And, and they said, Oh, I don't care what you're doing. Just keep doing it. So sometimes I'm like, I don't know, just don't even tell them you're eating a ketogenic diet. Tell them you started eating whole foods and you started exercising and you know, that let the numbers Speak for themselves um,
1: right.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah i I hope that we start to see a shift in medicine, but um I know it's a it's a very steep hill that that both mm-hmm. of you are walking on, so well, Dr. Sher, I appreciate your time and your expertise. This is absolutely incredible. Can you tell people where to find you and your work? Do you actually see patients? I know you're doing so much with metabolic mind and diet doctor and all these things, uh but tell people where they can find you,
1: yeah, so I do still see patients in a telemedicine practice um. As you mentioned at the beginning, uh, seven states, of so California, Arizona, Texas, Utah, Colorado, Illinois, Ohio, and those seven states, I can see you um, in telemedicine and lowcarbcardiologist.com is where you find me there. Um, and then from a from a mental health standpoint at Metabolic Mind, we have a, a YouTube page, um, Metabolic Mind, and also on Twitter, and then metabolicmind.org. So anybody living with mental illness, um, interested in improving their mental health, using the ketogenic intervention for those. Those are the best resources. Probably Metabolic mind on YouTube is the best place to start right now. Um, yeah. So that's where you can find me.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you, Dr. Scher. Thank you all for listening. Please share this with all your friends and family. We appreciate you spreading, spreading these messages around the world. Have a good day. Did you guys love that last episode of the Fit and Fabulous podcast? Well, of course you did. And I want to keep bringing you the most amazing content from the most incredible people. And you can help me by subscribing to the Dr. Fit and Fabulous channel. You guys know where the button is. Just click it. It's the doctor's orders.